Welcome to Running Off the Rails. My name is Raymond O'Connor. And I'm Ariel Rasco. And today, we're going to talk about whether or not it's useful to think more critically about progression in your game of Dungeons and Dragons. One of the things progression can do in your game is really give players motivation so that they stay engaged. A player is going to be excited about what they can do at their next level. If they know they're about to level up, they're going to be really engaged in the game and what they need to do to get that level. I think that changing progression in your game deliberately is a more nuanced dungeon master technique. Something that you don't have to worry about when you're first getting started out, but then you start to notice as more and more parts of being a dungeon master become easy for you. An example is that a lot of the Wizards of the Coast modules tell you what levels the characters should be at as they're going into different chapters of the campaigns. And if you're just kind of leveling your players along that progression curve, uh, things kind of work out for the most part. The, the module makes sure that the players are sufficiently heroic for the thematics of the end of your adventure. But as you start to homebrew more and more or write your own adventures, progression is something that can kind of get away from you. And even if you're running a published module, sometimes you might notice the level ups can feel a little bit strange or non-thematic. I think I've really started to feel this in my games with my friends. We've played Dungeons and Dragons together for six or seven campaigns, and I'm really looking for an experience where my character learns something in the game. I do so much role-playing and my character really feels alive, and if my character changes, I want that change to show up in the role-play. I don't want my character to change out of game, in between sessions. And some of the abilities you get in these level-ups are really character-changing. You can do wildly different things. You're taking on pacts. You're becoming a barbarian if you're multi-classing. You know, this should be extremely narrative. And in some ways, I found that the rules of D&D don't give me really good opportunities to role-play these character changes. I think you sometimes have to go a little bit outside of the rules and do a little bit of your own homebrew stuff to give this feel that I'm looking for, that something meaningful that happened in the game is going to reflect a meaningful change in my character sheet, and vice versa. Ariel and I started thinking a little bit more critically about this after Matt Colville made a series of tweets. He discussed how, in the 80s, players would level up by finding gold. But leveling up really only gave you better stats. If you wanted really cool powers and abilities, you would have to find magic items. And this solved a lot of problems that we perceive in 5th edition. If you find a really special magic item that has lots of cool abilities, now when your character uses that ability in a later combat, you feel like you've really earned it. You were able to kill this creature because you went deeper into the dungeon. If you hadn't done this process of discovery, a real pillar of Dungeons and Dragons, you wouldn't have gotten that power to kill this creature and win the combat. That doesn't really exist in 5th edition. Your ability to win in a combat is not as tied to the exploration pillar that we love in Dungeons and Dragons so much. Usually you just show up, you level up, and those class features you got from leveling are how you win combats, get through encounters. It's not the things you found through exploration 
that are the central piece for how you win combat. Because players needed to find the things that would give them their most powerful and potent abilities, their most character-defining abilities, engagement of your players was not really an issue. Your players needed to be engaged. They needed to flip over every stone and go into every doorway because they were dying to find that next magic item that would turn their character just from an adventurer into a hero. And because the abilities that typically were most excited to receive are tied to level up, engagement can be a little bit lower for your players. They know that for the most part, every player is going to get that next level up at the same time, no matter what they do. They will get the abilities that they're excited to receive, no matter what contributions they themselves make to the game. If you think about this older style of progression, I think you find three really strengths of older editions of D&D that are a little bit weaknesses in the current editions of D&D. There are three things that came to mind for me and Ray. The first, like we've talked about, is engagement. You're going to have tons of engagement in this older style. In a newer style where you get your level progression no matter what, you might have less engagement. The second thing is realism. In the older style, every new ability that you got, you earned in the game. It was a narrative moment. In newer styles of D&D, if you get a new character ability, you might not have a reason why. And the third thing that is a strength of older editions of D&D that we haven't brought up so much is the idea of having a unique character. The specific set of magic items and abilities that your character picked up in a dungeon along the way are unique to that character. If a dungeon has 20 different possible magic items in it, there are thousands of different combinations of which ones your character could pick up. The newer editions of D&D a level 10 divination wizard in one campaign might look exactly the same as a level 10 divination wizard in another campaign across the world. I think that this has a lot of benefits to making the game easy to pick up and move around, but it has the detriment that your character isn't unique. Your character is less special than in older editions. There was this really interesting cultural norm in previous editions of Dungeons & Dragons at least in some regions, where you could show up to the table with your character regardless of what levels the other players at the table were. Because it was your character. Every ability and magic item that that character had had been forged through adventure, through experience. I think that this is largely not the case in 5th edition Dungeons & Dragons. When you go to show up to play with a new group of people, typically you won't bring your previously existing character to that new table. Or if you do, you will strip away any magic items they have and adjust their level to match the level of the party. I really like this idea of a shared world that you used to have. You know, now you take away the magic items because you're not in the same universe. You're playing in somebody else's game. I really like the example from the first D&D episode of Community where they play Dungeons and Dragons to make a new friend. And this new friend has been playing for years. And so at session one, the very first combat, you have these lower level players who are trying to do their best. And then this amazing, powerful player character comes in with a magic sword and slays the creature in one amazing blow. Everybody was excited. They thought that this was such a cool moment where they got to see their heroic friend and 
they got to really experience the thousands of hours this person put into D&D right in front of them. And I think that, you know, there's a little bit of this lacking in our current culture of D&D, that we want everything to be perfectly balanced. And that has a lot of merit too. So I, I think this is something where you actually have to think really critically about what you're prioritizing in your game. Are you prioritizing realism? Are you prioritizing uniqueness? Or do your characters want to just build the thing that they're excited about from the player's handbook? I think these questions are, are not that easy to answer, actually. So let's talk about solving for the first idea that we brought up, which is player engagement. This idea that players are going to progress at the same rate regardless of what they do. I think that this is actually one of the easier problems to solve. First of all, Matt Koval just released an awesome video titled Rewards uh, that talks mostly about this point, and I would highly recommend going to watch it. It talks about how uh, video games clearly incentivize players to do things in order to get clear rewards. A time that I've run into engagement problems in the past have been when I've been running for co-workers. When I run with my group of friends, we're a close-knit group of friends, even though everyone's the same level, even though they all know they're going to level up at the same rate, they are amped up to play out of the abyss. They show up and they bring their A game. They're fully engaged. So it's not a problem that I need to solve for or something that I need to change about my game for that group. But when I was running for my coworkers, they all had very natural varying levels of engagement. Some of the players were parts of family. One of my friends has a son. He can't come to every session of Dungeons & Dragons. Another player is a fresh college graduate. They're trying to make new friends, and they love board games. They want to play Dungeons & Dragons every single time there's a session available. For this group of people, West Marches worked out really well. And I tied player progression to their engagement. The session's going to be roughly two and a half hours long. If you can make it to this one, you're going to get experience points. And if you can't, that's no problem at all. Or if even if you don't want to come, that's no problem at all. Your character won't advance. We still have enough people to play. The sessions are episodic in nature, uh, so you're not going to miss out on the story that your character is experiencing. Your character just won't go on the adventure this time. And that worked out pretty well. I noticed an increase in engagement of the players who were showing up because the players who wanted to play were there and the players who didn't want to play, the players who wanted to use their personal time for something else, they just bowed out of that experience. But the players who were coming were getting more character progression. But there are still situations where you have a player who's showing up and rolling dice and they're leveling naturally, but they're not super engaged in the moment. I think that there are some ways around this too. This maybe isn't a perfect solution, but I've found it's a very easy solution that has worked for me in the past. And sometimes that's just letting your players know that they're close to leveling. It's just a little reminder, like, hey, let's get in the game. You're about to get something really cool. If you do a good job in this next combat, you're going to level. Just keeping that front and center in players' minds, I think can really get them to snap back into the action. They know that they need to win this combat and it's gonna be a hard combat or there's an encounter that is going to take a lot of really good rolls and they want to 
you know, be creative and lower DCs and use help as much as possible because they need to get this to level. I think if you tell the players they're close to something, you remind them about it, it becomes front and center and they're going to be engaged again. This way you don't have to change the entire structure of your game just to get people more engaged. I think your West Marches game is a really great example, also because you talked about using experience. You can do this in any game. I think experience-based leveling has a lot of tricks to it. So if you want to specifically get into experience-based leveling, you can look that up in the DMG, in the player's handbook, and see what they talk about there. But it certainly solves this engagement problem for any campaign, I think. I don't like when you have to get out a calculator and solve everything after every combat and every encounter. I think that kind of detracts from the smoothness of your game. But certainly there are other ways to implement experience where you get to really reward your players for everything they do. And when they do something really cool, they are closer to leveling and they'll feel better for it. I think a West Marches campaign is a great place to do that. And I think there are some other campaigns where you can do it too. And I think that if you're using experience in your game, it's not a bad thing to use experience the way that some dungeon masters use inspiration. If somebody does something really cool in the moment, give them a small amount of experience, not an amount of experience where the other players are all of a sudden very angry because now they've been left behind in the experience curve, but enough where the other players kind of like perk up and are like, oh, if I am doing cool things, if I'm doing things that make the story better, I'll level a little bit faster. I think that it can be really tempting to fall into the pattern that you were talking about, Ariel, where you kind of remind players that they're going to level up. But this can sometimes lead to a a problem down the line where you've maybe leveled up your players a little bit faster <laughs> than you had initially planned to. That can definitely happen, especially if you use leveling as a boon. <laughs> you, you can get some really high-level characters very fast. <laughs> I, I actually really like your example of inspiration sort of as experience, where you can give rewards in the moment for small things. I've actually done this a few times at the end of a session. I don't know if you think this is a better place to do it or maybe just a different way to do it. But I, I have tried to not interrupt the session too much with like, you get five experience for this or you get 15 experience for this. <laughs> 10 points for Gryffindor. <laughs> exactly. So at the end of a session, I'll say, oh, do you guys remember that awesome moment? I'm going to give you 20 experience for that. And, and that way it keeps them engaged for the next session. It's like a little bit of um, more of a long-term fix. It helps keep people engaged over the long term, I think. I think that DMs can pick and choose the one they think fits their style a little bit better. If Melissa were here, she would be she'd be tapping on my shoulder and making me say that rewards given directly after the action that prompts the reward will have a stronger effect on behavior. Oh, that's some good teacher knowledge. I appreciate yeah, that. Yeah. No, thank you. No, that's good to know. Yeah. The same thing goes for uh, negative feedback. Um, if you have somebody who's done something that you want to maybe correct that behavior or or share with them like, hey, that wasn't cool. Can you not do that again in the future? It's always more effective to deliver that feedback as close to the event uh, as possible. The next problem that we wanted to talk about is realism. I think that an example in the Tomb of Annihilation game that I play with Ben 
really exemplifies this problem with fifth edition in some cases. In fifth edition, you choose a class and then eventually you choose a subclass. This can happen with other progression as well, but is super prominent in this example where sometimes your subclass drastically changes kind of the thematics and the narrative of the character that you are playing. In our Tomb of the Annihilation game, James from We Speak Common is playing a fighter. And then at level three, he chooses the Rune Knight class. And overnight, his character gains knowledge of the giant language, which he didn't have previously. He learns how to carve runes into weapons to create certain effects. And he also learns how to magically grow his size. And because we're traveling in the jungle and it's day to day, it was very obvious, especially in the context of the narrative, when all of a sudden this bundle of abilities became available to James's character, especially when we bumped into a group of giants and he started speaking giant to them. I think you can see the difference here between magic items and class features. An item in the game is something you explore, you go out and find, and everybody knows why you got this ability. Class features, you kind of have to explain why you got this ability or just hand wave it away. We made a lot of in-game jokes about like, oh, when did you learn to speak giant? He's like, I think I learned it in a dream last night. <laughs> but this is definitely <laughs> an issue that pops up in 5th edition, not just uh, when you choose a new subclass, but sometimes even just the ability that you pick up in your subclass progression can be a pretty jarring change in your character's abilities overnight. I think one of the solutions to this realism problem is very simple, and you just engage with the story a little bit more by planning ahead. And you can say, oh, my character is going to get this next level. Let me show my character practicing during this level. I'm going to attempt to do these things sometimes, and maybe it doesn't work. And then when my character is able to do it at the next level, you get this really amazing sense of progression, like we're talking about this whole episode, where your character couldn't do something before, they can do it now, and it's thematic, it's exciting, everybody sees it at the table, it doesn't just get hand-waved away. I think that Wes, in our Tomb of Annihilation game, does this really well. Recently, our characters were trapped in a rainstorm. It was going to have negative mechanical effects for our characters. We knew we were going to take exhaustion because of the rainstorm. And Wes's character, he knows that he plans on taking the spell, Liamin's tiny hut. And it's going to be very jarring if in the future, Wes's character just casts Liamin's tiny hut when he didn't in all of the cases previous where it would have been very useful. So Wes has his character attempt to do something that he's seen other wizards in his temple do. And he tries to cast Lehman's Tiny Hut before he has the spell available to use. This gives the foreshadowing in the narrative that this is something that Wes's character is practicing and trying to get better at. And then eventually when it succeeds, it will feel like a very natural achievement because the character has been working towards this goal and they finally achieve it. I think in the example of the Rune Knight, you probably need to plan ahead with your Dungeon Master a little bit more. I think it makes sense if maybe the Dungeon Master gives your character 
the ability to speak giant ahead of time. What are the chances that the ability to speak giant in level one or two uh, before you get your subclass is going to be relevant to the story? Slim, even if it does pop up, it just makes your character that much cooler and foreshadows their eventual level up into Rune Knight. And I think it's really cool as a player to be able to foreshadow that you are practicing with these different runes and maybe the runes are almost working, but at level three, they really start to work mechanically more reliably. I think this is a really good example of one of our tenets of good DMing, just that communication can go such a long way for making your games feel more fun and having everybody on the same page. Interestingly, I think Matt Colville's solution of giving rewards to players based on in-game events does an amazing job of adding realism to your game. It's not just a tool for increasing engagement. If your players go out and they find, you know, a coven of hags, and one of the rewards you can get for discovering this coven of hags is a certain divination class feature, maybe, or a certain spell that you can cast. You know, these are really in-game narrative things that change your character. Not only is this engaging your characters because they want to do the mission now, so they get the reward, it's showing an in-game reason for how they did this thing. Or later on, if they win a combat using this new feature, Everyone understands where it came from, it was exciting, and it reminds you of the stories you told along the way. If you communicate a little bit ahead of time, you can write a story that fits your players, which I think is one of the really special things about D&D. It's not a video game where everybody plays through the same thing. It's specific to your group of people. I think that's one of the draws of Dungeons & Dragons, is this idea that you don't know what's going to happen to your character that you play Dungeons & Dragons to discover your character's arc. It's the reason why we play Dungeons & Dragons instead of maybe writing a book or a novel, or just writing a journal entry about what happened to our character. This idea of discovery ties in really well to our third issue with progression in 5th edition that we wanted to talk about, that we think other editions might have done better. And this is the idea of having a unique character at the end of a campaign. If you finish a campaign of Dungeons & Dragons as a 10th level divination wizard, your character isn't going to be very different from somebody else across the world who went through a completely different campaign but is also a 10th level divination wizard. I think this, to me, is less fun but also just doesn't make a lot of sense. If you go through a completely different adventure, you should see the rewards of that. You should see a different character such that if you brought your character to a completely different campaign, people would be surprised and excited to see what your character had to offer. And this kind of ties back to Matt Colville's original point that he was making in the tweet, which was that you really didn't used to get much from your character's level progression. The coolest stuff that your character would get was this weird combination of different magic items and different skills that they had picked up in their adventures. And because in 5th edition, magic items are more of kind of like the spice that goes on top of a character, that 10th level divination wizard is going to be basically the same at every table. And that just seems a little less special. It makes our characters feel a little less special. So we have this one idea of a thing that we want to try out, and I think that Ariel has already tried out, that we we think might be able to solve all three of these problems. Engagement, 
There's no consequences for not being engaged, so why wouldn't a player not be engaged? Realism. The abilities that you're picking up from your class features are pre-decided. They have nothing to do with the adventure that you're on, and therefore, they can feel a little out of place when all of a sudden you get them. And then character homogeny. How can we make the characters that we're playing as become very different from other characters of the same class and subclass based on the adventure that we're on? Something that I've had a lot of success with is to play through an adventure where none of the characters level up. They stay at the same level throughout the adventure. Probably not a whole campaign, I'm thinking maybe eight sessions of D&D. This may sound a bit funny, we've been talking about leveling and progression this whole time. I don't think the solution has to be like, don't progress at all. The idea here is that you get to play at one level long enough that your characters are looking for other things in the game to make them more powerful. At the beginning of the adventure, they're not quite powerful enough to defeat the big bad or solve the problem that the adventure is posing, so they need to go into the world and find things to make them more powerful. They know this ahead of time. They probably will level up at the end of the adventure, and then you can go on and play a longer campaign where they do get to higher levels. But for this time, they need to explore. They need to find things in the game to get them to be powerful enough to solve the problem. I think that this highlights parts of the game that often kind of get swept under the rug. So imagine that you get buy-in from your players. Hey, we're going to play an entire adventure at fifth level. No one starts with any magic items, and you're not powerful enough to defeat the enemy at the end. So you're going to need to explore and discover ways to become more competent adventurers as you're playing in these sessions of Dungeons and Dragons. What an interesting challenge to be posed as a player. First of all, it gives you the heads up that you shouldn't be pining for higher level abilities. You create a character that at fifth level encompasses the archetype of the fantasy that you want to play out at the table. I think that this solves a problem that we've talked about in previous episodes of the show, which is that sometimes players are never quite satisfied with the character they're playing at the table because they're busy imagining how powerful their character will be one day. Because the players know they're not going to level up, they build something that is a complete fantasy for them, and they show up satisfied with their character. And then they start to explore your world, looking for people that can teach them skills, hints about powerful magic items that might exist, monsters that maybe have powerful abilities that they can kind of leverage or bring back to maybe alchemists to create weird poisons and things that they can put on their mundane weapons. It allows the players to explore all the parts of the game beyond leveling, which takes up so much of our bandwidth when we're typically playing 5th edition Dungeons & Dragons. Yeah, there's really this sense that you need to go out for a reason. I think sometimes side quests in D&D at my tables have not felt as exciting as I wanted them to be. I was letting players know that they had the opportunity to find this cool thing, but they were more interested in the main plotline. And they knew that they would level up fast enough to defeat the big bad and, and go through this main plotline. And the side quests that I put in for the players weren't as enticing. And, and this doesn't mean that the D&D was bad. We still had a really great time going through this story. 
I just felt like it was more linear than I had hoped as a DM, and I, I wanted to introduce more exciting side quests. So what I did was, the next campaign I ran, I told the players that we were going to do a whole little adventure at level 3. This is pretty low level. I think next time I would do this, I would start at a higher level, so that you can have a more fully realized character. But we started at level 3, and I told them that they're going to be level 3 for a while. Don't expect to level up until this little adventure is over. And we started with something sort of similar to Against the Cult of the Reptile God, where there was a group of people trying to serve a higher power, and the players had to, you know, suss out who was part of this scheme, and sometimes they found people that were stronger than them. This meant that the side quests they went on were extremely important. They found really cool items that they used to beat these cultists, and then after they succeeded, they leveled up to level 4 and got new feats. So it felt like the whole story that we had run through, they could use those narrative beats and, and really find a feat that fit the character that they had made. And I thought that that was a really good moment. And then we spent all of level 4 doing the same thing. So I had 6 sessions at level 3 and then 6 sessions at level 4 where we had 2 separate adventures. And I think the players then when they reached level 5... They had these exciting magic items that they felt were meaningful. They were pretty powerful characters. So we did get that sense of progression that you get in D&D. You know, normally you might go from level 1 to level 11, and you feel like you get a lot more powerful and grow as a player. In this case, we went from level 3 to level 5, but they still got that sense that they grew a lot and progressed and got more powerful. And by the time they got to level 5, they chose these really cool class features based on the stories we had told at the table. They had so much material to draw from. It wasn't just you have two sessions and then you pick a subclass. They were really able to draw from all the material that we had gotten in these 12 sessions to create a character concept. And they multi-classed because of that. And I thought that that was really cool and really special. So overall, this is something I want to try again with maybe a higher level so that, you know, we have a little bit more of a hero to start with rather than a small-time adventurer. I think the thing that proves the success of this discovery-based way of playing Dungeons & Dragons, or specifically this discovery-based way of progressing, is that your players decided that at 5th level, that was the level that they were going to multi-class, which is the most absurd level to decide, no, forget about it, I don't want 3rd level spells, I don't want my extra attack feature, I'm going to multi-class because it's more thematically appropriate. Yeah, it was it was crazy because they didn't feel like they were lacking in these combats. They had potions and spell scrolls and, and magic items that they were using left and right. You know, they had a lot of tools at their disposal, whereas a normal fourth level character, I think, doesn't have as many tools. And then they got to multi-class, which was this really fun moment because their characters got to, like, pick up a completely new and weird uh, trait, but it, it totally made sense in-game. It wasn't something that we had to explain away. We got to tell this story and, and create these crazy characters without feeling weird about it in the moment. I think this gives you license as a dungeon master to do something pretty taboo also, which is to give out magic items generously, especially consumables. Give out powerful stuff on a regular basis. Let your players find that stuff because you know that they're not going to all of a sudden find a plus two sword and get extra attack or that like crazy new class feature and all of a sudden 
catapult themselves in power level. And attunement slots work really well to make your players pick and choose the things that they're using at any one time as well. I really love this idea of your players needing to keep their eyes open and work with the dungeon master to find really interesting ways to advance their character. I could see a player going to an alchemist and being like, can I study with you such that I can attain the poisoner feat? And as a dungeon master, that's not something you plan for. That's not loot you dropped in the world. That's player engagement. That's the player leafing through all the hundred feats that exist in Dungeons & Dragons 5th edition and being like, oh, this mechanical ability is thematically appropriate for our story. <laughs> and then they, they're like, what can I do to make my character more awesome because of this thing that makes sense in our story? Yeah, this idea of engaging with player agency, I think, is a little bit more fun than engaging from a DM perspective sometimes. If I put something in front of the players as a DM, that is me railroading in some sense. You know, I'm choosing for them how their character can get better. If the players have enough time to explore the world and there are many different options for things that they can improve, it's a little bit more sandboxy. And there's a lot of benefits to railroading and there's a lot of benefits to sandboxing and and finding the perfect fit for your game can be anywhere in between for me i really enjoyed this experience of sandboxing with my players where they got to tell me how their characters wanted to improve because the player's handbook wasn't going to tell them they weren't leveling up that said i don't think this is a one-size-fits-all solution character progression and leveling and getting those high level class features is something that a lot of people love in Dungeons & Dragons. They love the idea that they can look through the player's handbook and make a build. And then every session that they come, they get excited to move towards that build. A friend of mine really, really wanted to play a 5th level barbarian with 2 levels of druid so that he could be this raging totem beast barbarian that wasn't just getting half damage but was also a literal beast. He could turn into the thing that he worshipped with his totem. And so he started with the barbarian levels, and then once the party got to 6th level, he was getting closer learning the druid things. And 7th level, after he spent so much time, you know, really focusing on this totem, it was this really narrative experience that he got to turn into, you know, a bear. And it was amazing. So I really do think player agency can come up with normal leveling progression. You can get engagement. You can get stories where players create narrative experiences. There, there are lots of solutions that we've talked about in this whole episode where you don't have to completely slow down character progression to get these things. But this is just one option that I had a ton of success with. And I think it really forces your players to think about the world they're living in in a different way because they're not just going to get their benefits for showing up and rolling dice. Couldn't have said it better. I think that's a great place to wrap up this episode. Just a reminder for folks out there, the next time that an episode will come out is two weeks from this episode. Until next time, I'm Raymond O'Connor. And I'm Ariel Rasco. And thanks for listening to Running Off the Rails. If you enjoyed Running Off the Rails, please like, follow, and review our show on your platform of choice. 
please follow our Instagram, Running Off the Rails, for notifications whenever we release a blog post, a new episode, or new content on the DMs Guild. If you prefer a specific type of content, please send us a message on Instagram. The jam you are listening to is Hoist by Andy G. Cohen, and you can find Hoist and more of Cohen's music on the Free Music Archive. You can find links to all of our content at runningofftherails.com or on our Facebook page, Running Off the Rails.